zip lock that Right on my waistline is why I kept that strap I remember nights, I didn't remember nights I damn near went crazy, I had to get it right Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Trap Drop Podcast. This is an owner's episode. As such, I'm joined by my esteemed colleagues, KBV and Neil. Gentlemen. Fellas, great to be back on an owner's pod. Love the topic we've picked for today. TC, I'm so glad to hear you're back in better health. I know your plan hurts a little bit this week. Uh, just impressed by your guile. It's not quite your thank, thank flu you. game, but you know, you're, you're pushing through. It was it was my strep throat or bad sinus infection game, but I couldn't I couldn't miss this subject. This is our guy, Neil. Who are we? Who are we talking about today? We're we're talking about Gerald Wayne Jones, also known as Jerry Jones today. Jerry, uh, America's team, the star, as he likes to call it, what the star does for the Dallas Texas community. But first, we have to talk about another famous logo. And that is the Subtle Dog logo. That's right. Roback is our sponsor today. And just because the holidays are over doesn't mean you can't buy comfortable apparel. Fresh off new restocks of polos, hoodies, and Q-zips. Trust us when we say there isn't better gear for the remainder of winter. The fit, the feel, the quality, it's all dialed. First, Roback just released brand new Performance Crews, and they are soft and very comfortable with breathable, lightweight fabric. They are... That also has a perfect stretch. It's hard to take. Them I love off. those. Uh, and you know, straight up, yeah, the, the crew necks are, are very solid. You know, they have the best performance Q zips as well. Um, and now that it's winter, you can load up on Roback for the cold days ahead. Use code TRAP, T R A P, on Roback.com for a generous 20% off your first order through the end of this week. That's spelled R-H-O-B-A-C-K.com. That's 20% off all bottoms, Q-zips, hoodies, and more with code TRAP. Get ready for winter. It's here. Uh, and it looks like all of us have the Subtle Dog logo on right now. Uh, Didn't even coordinate that. Did you ever coordinate with kids in school? Like I, I remember talking to one of my buddies, be like, hey, let's both wear Hawaiian shirts today. We wore uniforms. I did not do that. Uh, but you know I love a good animal shirt Monday. Uh, also, th I'm wearing one that th there's this guy that plans this thing called the St. Rapio Cup every year. And he he has they made this logo with like a cartoon of me, I think. And he's, he always sends me the gear he sends to his buddies. And it, it's always like he made a rowback hoodie with the logo on it. And so, I mean, the guy does an outstanding job with merch. So I just want to shout that out as well. Nice. I'm really, really excited for you guys to see the Baltimore merch. You know, we've got a, a future roost coming out and i've been i've been in the the whatsapp group there's lots of logos being test run oh yeah there they're very exciting well guys we wanted to do this this episode normally we do three owners this episode we're doing one owner because this is such a sprawling episode uh kv is going to take us through kind of jerry's upbringing how he rose to prominence in the business world uh, all that, then I'm going to take us through kind of his his stewardship of the Cowboys, and then Neil's going to talk about running the Cowboys as a business, and and you know some of the extracurricular stuff there as well. So KVV, lead us off, man. Yeah, I think we wanted to do this one just because truly one of the most powerful figures in sports, one of the most colorful figures in sports, one of the most widely known. A lot of people think of him as the shadow commissioner of the NFL. Uh, and truly, as you'll see in just a second, comes from a very 
interesting uh, background. Jerry's father, Jerry Pat Jones, was born, uh, he was one of seven kids, uh, born in a pretty poor Arkansas family. His father was born, he was he grew up picking cotton and watering mules, uh, which, you know, <laughs> We, we love the mules around here. You know, Jerry loves the mules, too. <laughs> they moved to California when uh, Pat was trying to sort of seek his fortune. And it was actually in Los Angeles that Jared Jones was born. But his parents kind of struck out there and moved back to North Little Rock in 1945. Uh, the father supported the family by selling chickens and rabbits and eggs from the back of a truck. Rabbits. So that's how, yeah, that's how country Jerry, Jerry Jones' uh, family was. I told Jeff Perlman this in The Boys Will Be Boys, which we'll be reading from liberally here. I learned early on that if you bust your ass and go after exactly what you want, you will get it, Jones said. So his father, from a single fruit stand in Little Rock, built up to eventually have three supermarkets and three convenience stores. So Jerry both grew up in like super poverty and also like grew up as like part of a, a Little Rock supermarket kingpin. Don Manetta, who wrote a big profile of Eric Jones in ESPN the magazine uh, a few years ago, said that at age nine, Jerry began learning the art of the sale inside his father's grocery store uh, in the Rose City area of North Little Rock. His mother dressed him in a little black suit and a bow tie and positioned him inside the store's front door. And it was customers would come in. He would say, can I help you find something, ma'am? <laughs> His father was a natural-born salesman who knew how to attract customers. He learned their names and kept them coming back. At local parades, young Jerry would dress as a cowboy and ride a pony with a sign advertising Pat's Grocery Store. Uh, he was very good at selling himself, he said about his father. After football practice on the weekends, he would like stock the shelves. He would make homemade ice cream. He would sweep the floors. He would do whatever his father asked. And he collected nickels and life lessons. Uh, back then so if you remember like at this time this is in the in the 50s little rock is sort of a hotbed of racial tension you might have heard of the little rock six so it's 1957 the federal government decided that schools were going to integrate and they were going to make them integrate uh even if they didn't want to particularly down in the south and so dwight d eisenhower sent federal troops into Little Rock. And who, uh, of all people, we didn't learn this for another 50 years, but was standing on the steps of Little Rock, of North Central Little Rock, was Jerry Jones. Uh, With this tight, tight flat top, yes. right? I mean, just like, I want a zero on the sides. I don't even want you to look at the top, yes. right? That that thing is is uh, at right angles only on the side of the haircut. Even though there was a lot of racial epithets being sort of thrown at these students, uh, you know, like rotted fruit being thrown at these students, there's no evidence that Jerry Jones participating in any of this stuff. He said that he was just there. He told the Washington Post later uh, because he was feeling mischievous and he wanted to sort of see what was going on. Uh, his football coach had told him to hold the team, do not go down there on the day of integration. Jerry went anyway, and he said he told the Post, I was frankly worried about my coach kicking my butt for doing exactly the thing he told us not to do. Uh, so that episode would sort of he would address that many years later as sort of when the washington post was like hey like i know you have this you know complicated racial background also why have you never hired a single like black coordinator for your team and he was like oh, i've done more for race relations than anybody in this country uh jerry was quite taken aback but uh, to his credit like sat for a lengthy interview with the post and talked about how you know he needed to be better as a man and he needed to sort of he he had no not a racial bone in his body blah blah uh, he turned out to be a pretty good football player when he was young. Uh, he, As a freshman, he started at quarterback for Little Rock Central, even though he weighed 120 pounds. 
And even he played much of that season with a hairline fracture in his arm. So Jerry was a tough little little bugger. He eventually switched to running back and earned a scholarship to the University of Arkansas, which makes him one of the only owners really in the history of the NFL to have played like high level football. Well, like him and KVV. Jerry Richardson. Mm-hmm. And this stuck yeah. out to me. I yeah. was kind of kind of shocked. I did not know that that uh and, and when he got to Arkansas, which I'm sure you'll get to, he's he's kind of a unit. He ends is. Up, ends up playing O line. Yeah. Uh, so but he, I saw, saw some quotes from high school. He's like, I just love, I love to hit. Yeah. You know, him, him and his his buddy, we used to like to to hit the snot out of each other. You know, <laughs> just it's like you, you kind of want to think like, man, I bet you were, I bet you're bullshitting. Cause like doing these owners pods, it's like, you know, can't can't believe any of these guys with their mm-hmm. how they place themselves in their own history. But it sounds like Jerry was actually a a, a ball knower, TC. I would say is a ball knower. Yeah, <laughs> you know he's he's proven over time that he he knows like some ball. He did, you know, he he was he loved to be in the mix of anything. He he wished he could play quarterback. You know, he's kind of fits that quote that one said about uh, Teddy Roosevelt. It's like he wanted to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. Like Jerry wanted to be the center of everything all the time. Uh, so it was a little bit hard for him when he he came as a fullback to Arkansas, but then he moved to offensive guard and just learned to you know hit the shit out of people. And he was actually on the Arkansas team in 1964 that went undefeated. So he was pretty, you know, pretty darn good accomplished player. One of his teammates uh, told Jeff Perlman, he has this unique way of verbalizing in very few sentences his very innermost feelings and convictions. This is Jim Lindsay, who played in the NFL. I played four years at Arkansas and seven more in the pros, and I was never around a more inspirational leader. Part of the sort of Jimmy uh, Jerry Jones lore was that uh, roommates were assigned alphabetically at Arkansas. And so Jerry Jones ended up rooming with Jimmy Johnson, a fireplug yep. kid from Port Arthur, Texas. Uh, their their coach was Frank Broyles, who was sort of one of uh, America's you know most innovative coaches back in the day. Do you know who their freshman coach was? I know that Barry Switzer was on their uh, like was their one of their coaches on that staff. He was their freshman coach. And yeah. I got a, I had a quote in here. Uh, I want to shout out Texas Monthly. Nice. Uh, some good stuff there. But Jones's freshman quote, uh, freshman coach Barry Switzer sized him up as a player with a whole lot of quote hustle and try hard, who could look you in the eye and talk right through you. Sounds like a at six yeah. feet. Sounds like an eye test. One ninety. Jones was a fine physical specimen, although slightly undersized for a guard, which was the position he ended up playing. With racial segregation still keeping blacks out of the Southwest Conference. Uh, in 1960, scrappy and determined white boys like himself could not only earn full scholarships, but also shine on the field. <laughs> I thought that was a a fantastic blurb from the Texas. You know, that sounds like your your scouting report at uh, Columbia. I I think yeah, you could probably draw some some uh, some symmetries there with with the Ivy League football in the Southwest Conference in 1960. Scrappy and determined white boys sounds like a yeah. great like I don't know either indie band or you know backfield or uh, you know any kind of uh i i just love i've always loved the the like um power couple college roommates like the al gore tommy lee jones at harvard wait they you know they and were, then you got, I, I had no idea on that one. Oh yeah, yeah. they were roommates. Oh, yeah. tommy lee jones played football al, al gore was his roommate tommy at lee jones. yes yeah well it bl- still blows my mind crazy yeah. mm-hmm God, there's a few more I can't think of, but we, we need to do a whole pod on power roommates. <laughs> Let's put it out to the audience. Send yeah. us your power couple college roommates. Those are those are these are the top two I've got right now, though. Nice. The legend was that sort of Jimmy and Jerry 
would stay up late at night dreaming about, you know, one day that they would work together and they would own a team that they were, you know, fast friends. That was the kind of the tale that the media told uh, eventually when Jerry bought the Cowboys. Not exactly true. They were, you know, roommates uh, and friendly, but they weren't exactly like tight uh, buddies in part because Jerry Jones was like continuing to hustle his way through college. Like he didn't have a lot of time when he wasn't doing football. He was basically just selling, selling, selling. He would sell shoes, then catalogs, then insurance policies on commission for his father's sort of newly founded company. This is a quote from Barry Switzer. He was interested in making money. And while the rest of us were out in the Shamrock Club or the tea table enjoying the weekend with the sorority girls, he was out making money. The Shamrock Club. Uh, uh, you know. a, a, another quote I saw was he used to drive around in his convertible with a pinky ring. Uh, and everybody kind of knew that, like, all right, you know, th- this guy, like, he's got an aura to him. Like, he's he's crafting his own personal brand right from right from college. Nice. There's a great story in that he, Vanetta got this from him, that he was at the, like, the Arkansas State, the I guess the school fair came to town and was playing one of those games where you had to, like, throw footballs through tires to, or, you know, baseballs at milk bottles to try to win a, a prize and he was really trying to impress Miss Arkansas, who is the sort of the beauty queen, Jean Chambers. And he couldn't couldn't win. He was getting super frustrated. So all of a sudden, like he's disappears and he reemerges like, you know, a little like probably two minutes later. And he's got this big old teddy bear that he's he's handed and he hands it to Eugene. And he's like, oh, I finally won one. He didn't fess up for like years later that he basically like went behind this thing and bought one of the teddy bears off of the thing to be able to give to her and they ended up married for you know the last 55 years or so which is like kind of bonkers so forever a hustler jerry jones the uh, ultimate hustler he, the ultimate hustler <laughs> he read in uh, life magazine one of those years when he was in college about art model uh and he sort of that was what sparked his dream of owning a pro football team so he basically was you know he's only making like a thousand dollars a month at this point so it's like seemed kind of ridiculous and when he told his father that his goal his lifelong goal was to own a football team his father thought it was just absolute joke it's like put away those dreams like that's never happening and so he kept kind of hustling in the insurance business his father actually changed careers in 1960 doing this insurance business but then eventually he used it to develop the largest ranch in missouri his parents moved to missouri 5500 acres and on this weird ass ranch they would like bring in exotic animals from Africa and like other parts of the world. And it, this ranch was like running all the way up into the like the 90s, I think, where people would come and they would get in their cars and they would see like exotic African animals. Uh, basically, was that that was Jerry Jones's dad, his parents, hillbilly safari. Yeah. <laughs> so when he was um, he's real in in college, he basically like like a senior in college he scraped together a bunch of money and he kind of snuck his way into the owners meeting for the afl because uh, he wanted to sort of meet and impress lamar hunt and ralph wilson and bud adams and he's basically like just hung around the lobby like hustling so you never know the future nfl owners of america might be like just you know guys like us neil just hanging out in the lobby uh in pinstripe suits trying to impress the the owner so that's, that's tc i still say. remember the owners meeting was at the ritz in buckhead this is probably 2014, 2015, and I was in town selling market research on software, staying at the Ritz. TC got me a nice friends and family rate, and I remember being in the lobby, seeing Sal Palantonio hanging outside the conference room. 
I'm not going to lie. I kind of, I lingered a little bit like, let's see, uh, let's see what's going on down here. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of a, the power brokers are in town. Let's, let's just linger in the lobby. I love it. Yeah. I think I've said this on, on previous episodes, but like, it was always interesting. I think we had, we had winter meetings and then we had like the big meetings one year and you know, Mike Brown, like the Brown family would always get like the cheapest room on like the third or fourth floor, like very, very true to form. <laughs> and then, you know, Jerry Jones, his assistant would always call like, like basically everything ran through the league office. They would give us like the manifest or the, the uh, rooming list. And then Dan Snyder, the Glazers, Jerry Jones, and a couple other owners would always have their assistants like personally call the reservations department or the meetings and special events coordinators and say like, and try to like jockey for like, we had two Ritz Carlton suites. We had two presidential suites. We had two Buckhead suites and they would always try to get, you know, the Ritz Carlton suite on the 21st floor. It was like, you know, it was, it was like this dick measuring contest among them. So Jerry Jones was always participating in that. That's awesome. I did not know this, but it when Jerry Jones was 23, he basically like figured out a way using kind of someone else's money, he put up $50,000 of his own money to an agreement to purchase the Chargers at the time. He there were Chargers were for sale for 5.8 million and they were still part of the AF from uh, Baron Hilton. That's right. Selling them. Were the Chargers in San Diego at this time or were they Yes. Okay. Yes, in San Diego. So, uh, and it was mostly like banker's money, but he was going to be the sort of front man. He'd gotten like a million dollar letter of credit to um, sort of, you know, help him out. And his, his father basically talked him out of it. He was like, you're, you know, Jones said, this is dad, this is my lifelong dream to own an NFL team. And his father said, you aren't old enough to have a lifelong dream. Uh, the, the amount of debt that he'd have to take on would put him behind the eight ball. Uh, and he talked him out of it. So, could the, like how different the NFL might have been if Jerry Jones had ended up owning the the Chargers. So right after the AFL and the NFL merged, uh, the Chargers' value like doubled overnight. Uh, so they you know went from being like worth five point million to being worth twelve million, and you know so Jerry had felt he had he missed out on like an easy quick kind of score, but he said he never kind of blamed his father. He said I knew how much he loved me. Uh, and he was giving me advice selfishly as a father's. I guess we're all selfish as fathers, but he certainly was doing it for my best interest. So he never felt bitter towards him about it. Is he still living in like Arkansas, Missouri at this time? Or is he well, he's in Missouri at this time. Yeah. So uh, he had gotten out of the grocery business and he, it says he engaged in some creative leverage to buy the modern security life insurance company of Springfield, Missouri, which then leads to the ranch. Apparently, he told his son, quote, I knew I was never going to be a millionaire, so I just decided to borrow a million, uh, which I think is – I want to leave that quote there because I think it sums up Jerry's uh, early business career and and things like this Chargers thing. Apparently, he put up 50K, but he had a bunch of sketchy investors that were willing to you know go in. on. He had this investor group, and his dad was like, this is bad news. Don't do this. Uh, so he talked him out of it. So this is where – Jerry's career gets a little bit interesting and a little bit kind of murky because he's sort of engaged in something that's called wildcatting, uh, which our friend Bunky kind of uh, helped uh, inform us a little bit about. Wildcatting basically means that you're looking for oil in or natural gas in like wells near wells that have already been drilled and sort of tapped out dry. And so he would kind of go around and basically be like, oh, you know, let me let me buy up this land at sort of a cheap price. I'm going to, you know, try wildcat in here. Bunkley's and kind of a wildcatter. 
Yeah, maybe maybe Bunky's a future football owner. Yeah. You never know. And so he he borrowed up money to kind of buy up some of these holes in Arkansas and Texas and Oklahoma. And he, there's one kind of strange deal where he basically got to this guy to sell him Bill Nelson, the guy from Arkansas, to sell him his, his land for 15 million. And then he ended up drilling like every, he he hit in 17 straight like oil patches. You know, that's which is unheard of to think of like you were digging out sort of, you know, wells, dry wells, hit 17 straight. And eventually, like the state of Arkansas was like, yo, we need this land back. Uh, and he ended up paying Jerry Jones one hundred and seventy five million for the sort of places that he he he'd found out. So, like, quickly, like, learned to kind of put faith in himself, even though like the land, the, the, and the land ended up not being worth that much money. Because the oil did eventually dry up, so he kind of you know hustled his way into like a major payday that that you know probably shouldn't have hit the, quite the way it did. There was like a big deal that he did with like he he aced Warren Stevens and like the Stevens family mm-hmm. out of a bunch of money on like this pipeline deal that was kind of around that same time, right? Yeah. Well, so just to back up for a second because it kind of covers some of the the business stuff I had. So first he goes to work after he went to business school after he wins the Cotton Bowl. Uh, Then he goes to work for his dad's modern security life insurance company and recruits other sales reps. So kind of running the the classic playbook of, you know, getting a bunch of guys selling selling insurance. And then uh, he borrows 50K from his father-in-law to invest in Shakey's Pizza Parlor franchises. Oh, I missed uh, this one. All across Arkansas and I think uh, Eastern Texas. I'm not sure what happened to the the Shakey's empire. Never been to Shakey's, but have heard have heard good things we'll have to follow up on that lead uh then he buys into tyson foods in springdale arkansas uh, and apparently he's pretty overextended at this point and almost went broke and then he then the dolphins thing happens he tries to buy a piece of dolphins they laugh him out of the room then he tries to buy the chargers that doesn't work out eventually shifts his business focus to oil and gas uh as an independent operator wildcatter um and it says here he uh land at least land for major oil companies in the Red Fork sand uh, northwest of Oklahoma City, uh, drilling between existing wells that people feel like have already been explored. His first well nets out $4 million. So he just kind of like strikes gold. And wildcatting stuff gets really sketchy because in Texas, or I think everywhere, I'm, I'm not an expert in this, but talk to a, a few of my Texas friends. There's land, you own land and you own mineral rights. And you can separate those two. And that's where, you know, a lot of these wildcatters will go around and like, from like some old couple they'll be like hey why don't you sell me your mineral rights right and then they hit you know strike gold and and the people that like live on the land get kind of screwed over so the the major plot line in killers of the flower moon if you haven't seen it essentially there, just there like you the, have it. handing over the mineral rights passing it down from from family to family in the osage indians neil, which is right around in oklahoma in this part of the world so. neil do you have friends in texas or like are you are you welcome in texas any, uh yeah at this point i think so yeah okay. i think we're we're in it we're in a good spot texas uh, i was at a, a wedding of a of a friend of mine from texas i was talking okay. wildcatting with his cousins for like an hour at the the rehearsal dinner it was it's fascinating stuff you know you start get a couple of whiskeys going and it's like all right this is how it really works you know out in the permian i'm like <laughs> hell yeah man so it's good it's good but listen oil business has been good the last 10 years but then it's like man if people it's like it never fails no one's putting the money away they're just you know Lot, lot of millionaires in Midland, Texas, right now. Oh, yeah, and they're 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 all dumping their money into the uh, Texas Tech NIL uh, collection. For sure, but it sounds like over the first ten years of this wildcatting career, he 
gets to about 50 million. Life was good. Quote from the Texas Monthly. But Jones wasn't satisfied. I never go to sleep at night. Uh, I've never gone to sleep a night yet without wanting something more to drink. Jones liked to say, ex- explaining his unquenchable thirst for the next deal. <laughs> Hell yeah. God, Neil, I'd love to see you and Jerry sit in a room and talk, talk it's, business, it's, talk deals. Well, then he gets outside. So then he starts going, he's Oklahoma. The deals start to get bigger. So he takes that money. It's almost feels like he takes any profit and he just pours it into the next like debt fueled acquisition of, of land. Then he gets a, a gas play going in the San Joaquin Valley of central California that brings in another $40 million. By the end of the 80s, Jones is worth hundreds of millions of dollars, though just how many hundreds is a point of some conjecture. So you, you don't really know. Like, is he? He's kinda, he kind of puts on the air of being a hundred millionaire, but nobody really knows if it's real or not. So in 1989, it becomes, this becomes sort of part of football lore, is that Jerry and his son were down in, in uh, Cabo basically getting drunk. Is this Steven when, or Jerry Jones Jr.? This is Jerry Jones Jr. Okay. No, excuse me. This is Steven. Sorry. And they open up the Wall Street Journal from like yesterday, like the previous day. This is how slowly information traveled at the time. And it said that Bum Bright, who was the owner of the Cowboys, was looking to sell. And so Jerry's like nursing a hangover. And he's like, oh, my God, like we got to buy the Cowboys. Uh, it's like, <laughs> And he told Van Atta, well, I wasn't up to par. But, you know, you know me from Adam. You don't know me from Adam. He, he said he called up Bum Bright and said, you don't know me from Adam. My name's Jerry Jones. And if I live through this day, I'm going to come straight back to Dallas and I'm going to buy the Dallas Cowboys, <laughs> which is pretty awesome. So Bum Bright is kind of an interesting character in this story. He was like a, a finance guy and he purchased in 1988, he purchased the Texas Federal Savings and Loans and the Dallas Federal Savings and Loans. He already owned the Cowboys at this point, but he only basically bought the Cowboys as like an investment. He had no attachment as a fan, no kind of – he you, you couldn't have given a single shit about it, except for the fact that he grew to really, for whatever reason, hate Tom Landry. He thought yes. that Tom Landry was just really fucking annoying. He hated the cult around Tom Landry. Now, remember, at this point, Tom Landry is like the third winningest football coach of all time. Uh, which he's still, I mean, I think like he's still three in the top Super five. Bowls, like, or, yeah, yeah. I, think, I think two Super Bowls lost another three Super Bowls, like, wore, you know, wore a suit on the sideline, kind of the epitome of like class, never really raised his voice. Bumbright just hated the dude, like, wanted him gone. So he made it a condition of the sale that whoever bought the Cowboys had to fire Tom Landry. And Bumbright actually need, kind of needed the money because when the um, bank industry sort of went, he was a, a private more like mortgage broker. When the bank industry went through a collapse, his wealth like went from like six hundred million to three hundred million in like one year. So he was kind of panicking about being you know not broke but like losing a lot of his money. So he's like, all right, I'm going to sell the Cowboys. So Jerry Jones was like, all right, absolutely, like I'll I'll totally uh, end up selling the Cowboys. They end up kind of negotiating for a while. Jerry, even though the Cowboys are, you know, there's other suitors involved. There's actually like a group of Japanese investors, uh, businessmen who is interested. The Japanese yeah. owning yeah. the Cowboys. Bum Bright was like, uh, I think he was a war veteran and he was like, I, there's no fucking way I'm selling to this group of Japanese. I don't care like what their uh, offer is, whatever. So Jones sort of becomes the top suitor. And they can't decide on like they're, they're like $300,000 apart at the end. And they eventually Jerry's like, all right, well, why don't we just flip a coin for it? <laughs> and so they flip a coin and Jerry loses. And so he's like, all right, he has to pony up the, the extra 300,000. And the next day, another group 
comes and says like, Hey, we'll buy the Cowboys for like $10 million more. And so bright is like, look, you know, the deal, like I have a deal with you, but if you want to turn around and sell the team to this other group, you could make a quick 10 million for essentially for nothing. And Jerry's like, you know what? Like, I don't think I'd sell the Cowboys for a hundred million more. This is what I've wanted my whole life. This is what I'm, I'm going to sort of do. So a couple things there. So HR bum bright buys a team in 84 for 83 HR million. Bum bright. He does. He clashes with both Landry, but also Texas Ernest uh, Tex Schramm Shram. Jr. Who's the, who's the uh, GM and kind of like the godfather. Which, which the uh, fact that Tex, Tex Schramm's Shram. name is Texas. And he yeah, wasn't Texas even born in Texas. This is amazing. Yeah. Texas Ernest Schramm Jr. Uh, so he, he sells it for 140 million plus this. So that includes the team, the stadium lease to Texas Stadium. And yeah, they're 300K apart. And apparently they flip the coin and the coin comes down in an ashtray. And Jerry Jones rushes over to see. He called Tails, it's heads. And then like a couple weeks later, apparently Bum Bright sends him a, a letter with a, a a coin in it that has a double-sided heads and a note that says you'll never know <laughs> which i thought i did was, not get that that's, that's awesome great, which is good stuff but apparently uh bum bright uh tex and landry just like walked all over him didn't listen to him and so he didn't tell those two he was selling the team and so this uh reporter in fort worth breaks the news on like the 10 p.m um you know local news and the kind of Dallas local news guy calls up Shram. He's like, you know, what wh you're in, you're selling the team. He's like, absolutely not. Like this guy in Fort Worth doesn't know what he's talking about. Sure enough, they both just get blindsided. And, uh, you know, Jerry flies in on the Learjet into Love Field. They go to, you know, I can't remember what the hotel's name is, uh, but like apparently sets up shop in the, um, uh, like the suite, the, at the, the ho nice hotel in Dallas. And, uh, then Shram is like, oh God, we're screwed. And so immediately knows that like Landry's out and and he actually sticks around for like three months, but then he's out really quick and Jerry cleans house. So sorry, KVV, please continue. No, that's very helpful. The the two sided the coin thing. Uh now I feel like I remember that at some point, but uh I'm not I, I just didn't include it in my notes, but great, great get by you. One other thing that I had is is basically Landry was like, I'm not gonna make it easy on this guy to fire me. I'm not like sticking around. Landry like hops in his little Cessna and like flies down to uh, Lakeway, te uh, Lakeway, Texas, basically like, you know, far outside of Dallas. And so Jerry Jones has to like, he wants to do it, be classy. He wants to fire him in person. So Jerry has to like chase after him in his own plane. And so uh, Landry, he goes out and he plays golf with his son. You know, obviously this is a time before cell phones or you could get, get anybody at any time. Uh, and by the time Jerry gets to the, the golf course, it's Hidden Hills Golf Course. Landry and his son are the only two people on the uh, at the course. It's kind of getting dark. They're like out just on the putting green. So Jerry's like, hey, you know, Tom, come on in. I'd love to talk to you, whatever. And they go inside and he's like, you know, I'm sorry. This is no disrespect to you, but, uh, you know, I, I just I'm here and Jimmy's here and we're going to move on. And Landry just gets incensed. And he's like, you know, this is so classless. You, you could have saved a plane trip down here. You could have saved on gas. And then Landry just like starts crying, just like starts sobbing in the thing, which is like it's sick because later Landry tells the team that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to love you. I'm going to miss all of you. You know, I'm out of here and starts crying and then like falls to the floor and like just keeps sobbing on the floor. So Landry, I, I have no idea. Landry, it, I, my impression of him as a kid was always this like super stoic, you know, classy guy. I didn't, they didn't know that he was so emotionally uh, invested in being the coach of the Cowboys for forever. Uh, to the extent that he would sob like that. 
the opening press conference is kind of, I'm going to close here. Jerry's, you know, he's super chipper. He's like, this is like Christmas for me. People, for whatever reason, thought it was like super disrespectful how he was kind of being so dismissive of uh, of Landry and his tenure. Uh, but Jerry said that he he planned to be involved in everything about the Dallas Cowboys future from jocks to socks. That's right. And he just got called. He just, you know, the Dallas, like, it, it was almost like everything he said, he thought it sounded great and everybody just mm-hmm. made fun of him. Like, he was trying to sound like worldly, like, oh, you know, I don't do that much business in Arkansas. I do a lot of speaking engagements in St. Louis. And they're like, St. Louis, you know, like, that's a, you know, like, this is the big this is big D, baby. Like they just thought he was just a country hick that that flew they, into town. They called him Jethro uh, for a long time, like from Jethro from the Beverly Hillbillies, who would like sort of struck gold and stumbled his way into, you know, owning a, a franchise. And it was it was not well received early on in his Dallas career. And apparently he had a Shram next to him at Tram. that, that Tram. press Shram. So yeah, I'm just I'm just protecting you. You're gonna <laughs> get roasted Tram, by, the, by the Dallas. Listen, Sti- the Stuyvesant boys need to watch it, okay? <laughs> Stu- the Stu the Stuvescent boys, I should say. Uh so Graham, excuse me, was sitting next to him, but Jerry goes on and on about how much he loves Landry, but he's like, Yeah, it's my team now. And uh he says, like, Shram's going to be taking a backseat to me and just kind of like, you know, like almost doesn't even realize it, but just disrespects this, you know, GM of of three decades. And, you know, he's all pissed off. Apparently, he goes after the press conference, goes into his office and has a, a quote, scotch wake with all the reporters. And he's like, just dogging Jones and how he's going to undermine him and all this stuff. And, and so it seems like things got off to a pretty rocky start for the first three to six months. I've never heard that Scotch wake. I'd let, I'm going to use that. Yeah. That's good. The uh, yeah, it, like so. I think the old going back to the wildcatting stuff. I think the first owner and founder of the Cowboys, Murchison or Murchison, Clint he, Murchison Jr. Yeah, he was a uh, he was involved in hot oil, which I guess is like selling stuff across interstate lines back you know back in the way back in like the early 20th century, making a bunch of money when you know quotas weren't met or when they were over quota you, you know you could it was kind of an inefficiency in the market there was a whole thing there it's, it's just funny to see you know the cowboys kind of ebb and flow with the fortunes of oil and gas you know um, yeah, it's fitting right yeah well, and hr bum bright so he gets into trouble you said it he buys these savings and loans there's savings and loan crisis i think it was kind of mixed up with the junk bond stuff with milken yeah. Back in the eighties, uh, I think I think Homie got into some trouble there, and was like, "I gotta, I need to, need to <laughs> exit figure this quick." Out. Yeah. yeah, but think about like the Cowboys. I mean, I'm sure you'll get into this, like how much the Cowboys are worth today. Just through, I mean, even if they had been a poorly run franchise for the last thirty years, which you know I don't think you can say they are. Certainly not business wise, they haven't been. Think about the valuation of the Cowboys now. I mean, it's probably the most valuable franchise in all of any sports. You know, maybe I'll say it's what Manchester Yankees, or, Cowboys, probably Lakers, Knicks. Like those are probably Manchester the, United. Yeah, probably a lot of uh, a lot of people tracking franchise value. You know what else you should be tracking, TC? Health metrics. Your mm. fitness. That's Bam. right. I uh, need to give a shout out to Whoop here. This episode is also brought to you by Whoop, the official wearable of the PGA Tour and of NLU. If you don't know by now, Whoop is a sleek, screenless wearable that tracks your sleep, strain, recovery, stress, and more to provide personalized insights that help you reach your goals. So whether you're obsessed with squeezing out a little more in the gym or shoot or shooting your lowest score um, in the golf season when it comes back, 
uh, or getting those extra hours of sleep a week, Whoop can help you build better habits and make healthier choices. Um, I'm definitely going to be starting off the new year with a, uh, a 10 strain challenge, which is just got to get over 10 every day of the month. Uh, it's a good way to, to get my, how long my are you going to do it for saddle? Just a month, you know, 30, 31 straight days is kind of the, the goal. Did one in Very August. Reasonable. It's, yeah. it's a nice benchmark on like, am I being active or not? But with features like strength trainer and stress monitor, you can finally track the intensity of your weightlifting or manage your stress levels with real-time stress score, science-backed breath work. Try Whoop for one month free and get ready to unlock the best version of yourself. Head to whoop.com, W-H-O-O-P.com to get started and use code NLU to save 10% off on your order. TC, take us through the Jerry Jones era of the Cowboys. Yeah, so I thought, first of all, I thought it was interesting just going back to some of the Tom Landry stuff of, you know, it seems like Landry was both a legend, but also it kind of lost, lost the edge a little bit. Um, you know, there were stories about him forgetting play calls or, you know, using the wrong terminology or like he had three straight losing seasons from 86 to 88. And then Jones buys the team in 89, which buying the team for $140 million, like in, like in that time, like, that's a pretty hefty sum of money for a pro sports franchise back in the late eighties, early nineties. Like this is before. Well, by this point it was, it was still America's team. Yeah. Um, so I think it was the biggest NFL, you know, purchase, which it seems like everyone now just is over and over again, but it sounded like Landry, he still only had three assistants and he still called like goal line plays, but it was like, yeah, the old man had kind of lost his touch a little bit. Yeah. And then I think he had, he had lost some, some credibility kind of lost the locker room after so the strike in 87 like tony dorsett and a few of the other guys crossed the picket line and there was like a big fracture in the in the team as far as kind of you know he just lost the locker room and the the, the atmosphere was just really shitty i guess so um yeah so anyway he he comes in fires tom landry uh immediately and then you know kind of brings in his boy J Jimmy Johnson. And, you know, at first it was we, we, we kind of like, so, you know, KBV, like in the, so kind of from a sources perspective here, it's almost like there's too many sources on Jerry Jones. There's, you know, there's boys will be boys by Jeff Perlman. There's playing to win by David McGee. There's how about them Cowboys by Gary Myers. Uh, Don Van Nata's done some, some, you know, excellent feature reporting. Brian Curtis has written on him. Like there's all sorts of stuff out there. You know, the, Dallas papers all, you know, there's like a plethora of stuff. So it's kind of, it's almost like getting waterboarded with Jerry Jones, uh, research here, but as you can see why yeah. we had to do one, just Jerry Jones pod, yeah. we couldn't fit three, three owners into one pod. Yeah. This was so, so some of it, KVV, I'll say like, you know, jump in with stuff kind of as we go chronologically, like feel free to jump in with stuff from boys will be boys. Cause I, it's tough to like, like, it's funny in boys will be boys. It's like, there's so much stuff about strippers and Coke and limos. And, you know, like, I mean, just like, it's like a, a grab bag of just every outrageous thing that you've ever heard about pro sports is included in there. We'll get into some of that, but kind of the broad strokes of like, he comes in, fires him in 89. Uh, they make the Herschel Walker trade, uh, which is, you know, three first rounders, three second rounders, and really like fleeced the Vikings, especially with if they cut the players that the Vikings sent over, 
like that, like that's where some of the second rounders came from. Like they, they conveyed into second rounders. And so one of the all time great swindles, basically the, the Vikings GM got completely fleeced in the sense of he thought the Cowboys who were bad would just keep the players that they sort of traded over. And the Cowboys were like, fuck this. Like we're cutting every one of these dudes. And so like when he realized that he was basically like, Oh shit. Like what have I done? I've completely like, tank the you know our prospects for yeah. years to come and he Still said the like, largest trade yeah. by like with a number of personnel in, in the history of the nfl yeah yeah and it's and it was something too where like the vikings guy was basically like you know what like keep the fucking players you don't need to cut them like i'll just send you the draft picks like it's it's uh and then yeah i mean you know so so jimmy then like who's kind of the godfather of like the current draft value chart like way way ahead of his time there you know ended up trading down a bunch as well basically the trade ends up like yielding like 19 picks where you know and they they get emmett out of it they get uh rod wood troy aikman russell maryland aikman yeah it's like you know one of the the all-time you know both heist i think michael irving too yeah like I think Ir- no, Irvin was prior to this. Irvin was there, actually. He was yes. already there. Yeah, he was. Yeah. I think he was. Who was the fullback? Daryl. Uh, Daryl Johnston. Daryl Johnson came out of that Oops. draft too. Yeah, but yeah, that's kind of the you know they they went one and fifteen the first season you know kind of bottomed out and then then they win Super Bowls ninety two ninety three. Uh, Jimmy Johnson gets fired after they win the Super Bowl back to back years. Was he fired or it, I, it, or did he? He resigned, I thought. Like there was there was tension, but it sounded like he like you can't fire me, I quit. Like kind of it was, beat Jerry to the punch. He was Jimmy was claiming that he was gonna basically he was sniffing around the Jaguars yeah. uh, job. Like he, and, like he was talking to Wayne Weaver because I think Wayne had, had had called to to make some you know kind of due diligence on some some other coaches, and Jimmy started selling himself basically to Wayne Weaver, right? So when Jerry kind of he Jerry just got really fed up about that Jimmy wouldn't give him some credit. They they grew to really hate each other because they would kind of give, you know, separate kind of discussions with the media back and forth about like, you know, we're doing great out there. And and Jimmy Johnson was just infuriated by it. I mean, Jimmy Johnson was not exactly like loved by his players because he was such a, a like a rig dig disciplinarian. Like he would let them go off and kind of you know, carouse off of the field, but he would really ride them hard in practice. And the, a lot of the players like hated his guts because he just had no sentimentality towards them at all. He was like, basically, I'll cut your ass in a second if, as soon as I can find somebody better and I'll ride you the, the hell hard in during practice. And so, you know, it was when initially the players were kind of like, ah, you know, like maybe this isn't a bad thing. Maybe we need, you know, somebody to kind of suit us. One, one thing that I kind of loved in the boys will be boys is that, it talked about every like in those first few years, Jerry knew that he was selling an entertainment product. And so he would bring like various celebrities down for the coin toss, like every game. So like one week it'd be like Elizabeth Taylor. And then <laughs> the Liz Taylor be, story is nuts. <laughs> like yeah. Uh let's see if I can find that while you're but it, it was just like he he knew that the Cowboys were not just a football team, that they were an idea that was sort of larger than who he was, and he had to basically turn them into an event uh, and all for people to want to go. And the, I mean, the, it just infuriated Jimmy Johnson that he was constantly like, 
sticking himself out there and bringing all these like goofballs out to for the coin tosses which this is you know i'm three years old at this time so this is a little before my time now i know jimmy johnson as like the guy with the fantastic quaff on the pregame shows and you think like oh he's kind of he seems kind of soft turns out he was like a like hard-nosed d lineman in college at at miami like a disciplinarian defense first guy and then it just blows my mind that he uh, quits after winning back-to-back Super Bowls, um, and then like and and uh, like resounding victories against the Bills. They smoke him both times, and then he never coaches again. Like right, he doesn't. He didn't. He no, no, he coaches. He coaches the Dolphins. Coach the Dolphins. Yeah. Okay, all right. I yeah. forgot about that. Like, but, like yeah, I that. love Jimmy Johnson. Like when he just like he's down in the Keys and he's just on his tuna boat and he just like he's like the most aspirational figure. But there's also some stories about like Jimmy basically walking into like his, you know, talk to his wife of 20 years and basically saying like, hey, I want a divorce because she's like distracting him from coaching the Cowboys and like treating his kids like, you know, I think the quote in in Boys Will Be Boys was like treating his kids like, you know, second cousins, basically. Uh, Because Jimmy Jones has a when he introduces him um, as the coach, he's like. Uh, Jimmy, Jimmy doesn't golf. Jimmy doesn't fish. Jimmy footballs. <laughs> yeah, that's that's that. You know, he's like singularly focused on football. So it's interesting now when it's like, oh yeah, that guy just fishes in Miami. The the uh, quote on on uh, the the Liz Taylor thing to to kick off the afternoon. Jones escorted actress Elizabeth Taylor to the center of the field and asked referee Pat Haggerty if the cinematic diva might call the coin toss. With a straight face, Haggerty announced. Captains of Dallas meet the captains of Washington. Captains from Washington meet Liz Taylor and Jerry Jones. Dexter Manley, the Redskins star lineman, glanced at the weathered thespian as if she were a piece of rotted ham. I didn't want to shake their hands. This is football, man, not Hollywood. And, uh, you know, it goes in to say, like, you know, all sorts of uh, people parading around the sidelines from Bill Cosby to Prince Bandar bin Sultan, uh, who was the Saudi Arabian ambassador to the united states to florida governor lawton childs to country singer charlie pride to the reverend jesse jackson so what a freaking circus man yeah so i think it's kind of i don't think it's quite accurate to say that jerry johnson resigned neil jerry jones very much got fed up with him got really drunk and there's sort of this famous scene at a bar where all these um you know national writers couple local couple national kind of walk by and they're like hey jerry what's going on and he's like i'm i'm firing jimmy johnson like (laughs) fuck that guy and you know it shows you how different like the media was back then they were like whoa and they sat with him for like an hour while he just like ranted and ranted and ranted about all this stuff and they kind of held the story because they didn't really believe it they just thought like oh he's kind of a sort of a drunk or whatever and he's he's not really meaning what he's saying and like the next day, like they came back and they like double checked and he was like, yep, I'm sticking with what I am. And so then they all like ran the story. And even then people still didn't believe it that Jerry, like he was going to fire Jimmy Johnson. It kind of, it hurt Jimmy's pride a little bit that to be sort of fired like that. And then they went, they did like a press conference together afterwards where they were trying to like make nice and be like, oh yeah, you know, we're, we just feel like it's a good time for us to split. We, we've accomplished everything we want to do but they were just seething at each other and they would continue to kind of take shots at each other for years to come yeah it seemed like there was some kind of like like some of the fishers kind of got exposed where like jerry would show up to the draft room with 
you know, his whole entourage. And then, and then Jimmy was like, well, fuck this. I need my own entourage in here too, to kind of balance this out. So there's, so it ends up being, there's, you know, 40 people in their draft room where most other, you know, NFL franchises, a don't have a camera in there and then B, you know, have, have a few assistant GMs and scouts and stuff. You know, it kind of seemed like it was we, 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 and then, you know, and then Jerry got pissed because, you know, Jimmy was like, no, I, you know, I did this, I, you know, I'm the personnel guy, da, 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 da. So, but yeah, I mean, 92 and 93, like there's, you know, there's just, there's all sorts of stories. Like it's like, there's like a whole chapter in Boys Will Be Boys about like Charles Haley, who they traded uh, from the Niners. I think what was that before the 92 season? Uh, they traded him from the Niners. Niners are like, hey, we got to get this guy out of here. He's a fucking lunatic. Like he's, he's just out of control. And um, there's there there's like a whole chapter about like Charles Haley's penis, <laughs> about just like, like flinging his dick around, yeah. like putting it on people's shoulder during meetings, <laughs> like literally like jerking off during like off you know defensive meetings. Uh, he was a truly like a strange, strange cat. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it says uh, the reputation started with the penis, a fire hose of an organ that brought Haley more pride than any game-winning tackle. As he grew comfortable in the 49ers locker room, Haley would stroll up to an unsuspecting teammate, whip out his phallus, and, sit, and repeatedly stroke it in his face. Players initially laughed it off, but Haley refused to stop. He would jerk off in the in the locker room, in the trainer's room. He'd wrap his hand around his penis, toward, turn toward Joe Montana and bellow, you know you want to suck this. You only wish you had this, baby. Uh, yeah, and, and there's, there's just, let's see here. Um... So wait, did the, the Cowboys traded him to the Niners or or no, the no. Niners traded him to Dallas? No, Niners traded him to the Cowboys and the and the Cowboys had like zero concerns whatsoever about mm-hmm. you know character issues or whatever. And uh and then and, apparently like he gets traded to the Cowboys and doesn't doesn't he go nuts and like the only person that can get him under control is Ronnie Lott, like from the other team, like had to come that's like ask once, Ronnie yes. Lott to come like, hey man, can you come into our locker room and get this guy under control? <laughs> Yeah, and uh, like there's a story when when Butch Davis, the future Miami Hurricanes coach, who was the defensive line coach at the time, saw what was transpiring. He stopped the tape. Haley, you know, get your fucking clothes on and don't come back in until you're dressed. On his second day at Valley Ranch, Haley wrapped an ace bandaged around his penis and strolled through the locker room naked, screaming, "I'm the last naked warrior! I'm the last naked warrior!" Um, you know, there's there's that stuff. There's just it's like. Just the whole organization was just kind of living on the edge. Like, I, there's a section of Boys Will Be Boys where we talked about how Jerry Jones uh, basically he got American Airlines to give him sort of like manifests of like the hottest uh, flight attendants, so he could st- always stock the team flights with the hottest flight attendants based on like breast size and whether they were single and then like whether they were down, seriously down to party. Uh, and the American Airlines apparently had a book with all this that they would just hand over to Jones. It's a, there's a Perlman employed. We did a cross section because you had the redheads, the brunettes, and the blondes. Said the American Airlines employee. The understanding was that the flight attendants would get to go to the first half of the football games, and then an intermission, go back to the charter and get the planes ready. So it was kind of like a floating orgy of like drugs and sex and stuff all throughout this sort of first couple, you know, really through the Switzer era uh, when things got like even more off the rails yeah and it said you know now with the golden days on on the horizon the the cohesion was was immeasurable players would report to valley ranch and find their lockers outfitted with bottles of wine or backpacks or leather jackets or digital cameras 
all courtesy of Mr. Jones. Free cars for the season were available to any player in need. Gift certificates floated from the sky. Those who wanted to play golf after practice could walk into a supply closet and grab anything from spikes to visors to khaki shorts. Dallas was all about class and treating players like royalty, says Kenny Gant. You were a king. It didn't matter if you were black, white, offense or defense, a partier or a family guy. You were one of us. There was no division in that locker room. We were one. And it sounded like just reading through some of it where it sounds like Jerry was doing off the books deals with guys too. Like there's signing bonuses, there's circumvention of salary cap and of, you know, of all sorts of stuff there as well. Like, but it's also like one of the things that just kind of, there's all these anecdotes of him, you know, being great to guys of like, there's, there's something like after they win the Super Bowl in, I think it was in 92, they won it at the Rose Bowl, you know, out in LA. And one of the guys that I think he had torn his ACL earlier in the season, he's kind of like this career long veteran grinder. And, you know, Jerry's like, Hey, do you want to like go in my personal helicopter and we'll just fly over LA for like the rest of the night? You know, you can just kind of gather your thoughts and stuff. Like there's these like very, you know, kind of heartwarming moments. And then there's, there's, there's these stories about like him negotiating with Emmett Smith on contract and like, you know, kind of playing to Emmett's heartstrings of like, you know what? Like, I think you're the, there's, there's only two people in the world that think you're like on Barry Sanders level. And both of them are in this room right now. So, you know, as such, I'm going to give you the same deal that Barry Sanders has, you know, and then like, you know, Emmett basically takes that back to his agent and, his agent tells him he's like, he's he's like, he's like, Barry's got the worst fucking deal in the league. And, you know, (laughs) Emmett's just livid and all that. And it's, you know, very, very acrimonious and all that. You know, I think in the midst of this, like you've got, I think Troy Aikman started his own country music group with some of the other guys. Trying to sign Eric Cole (laughs) to this day. Yeah. Well, TC, that's, that's interesting because when he buys the team, like I had a bunch of notes on from a business standpoint, Apparently, like Landry and Shram were running it. Shram, right? Shram? Okay. Yeah, uh, we're running it like a, a quote of family, right? They refused to, uh, like 118 new luxury boxes, only six of them were filled because they felt like it was beneath them to go and, and sell those to like companies. They wanted people to come to them to buy them. They refused to have any brand marketing in the stadium. They thought that was undignified. And so Jones comes in. He immediately cleans house, like fires a bunch of the old guard from like the publicist to the ticket, the 18 year, the woman that ran tickets, like season ticket sales. She's out. Um, the CFO's out and he immediately starts cutting costs. He's like, apparently, uh, Trump wanted everybody to fly first class that worked for the organization. And he was like, that's the cowboy way. We're a classy organization. You fly first class. Jones was like, immediately like, no, everyone's flying coach. Um, he took away all the company cars from like pretty much everybody, but like the, the, the top brass that he installed, he wanted to move the, uh, you know, training camp out of thousand, thousand Oaks because they were spending like 500 K a year on it. And he, I don't know if they actually did that for a couple of years. Cause I think they're back there now, but it seemed like he first and foremost, he cut costs and then he immediately went to work. Some of it sounds kind of like Dan Snyder adjacent. Uh, he sold. Um, let's see what were my notes. He sold an additional 30 luxury boxes within the first two months of, of signing up just like to all Dallas, like businesses. He, uh, put a thousand new seats into Texas stadium. Most of them with obstructed views. 
So just was like, yeah, let's put seats behind these uh, these pillars. That sounds Monetizing great. Monetizing everything you possibly can. Uh, he recalled complimentary tickets saved for former players and uh, player families, made made them all pay for tickets. Uh, he created a company called ProSeat to dynamically price prime seating. So he'd see like what season tickets were selling best and he'd just start jacking the rates up in certain sections. So it kind of seems like he, he kind of created the uh, original like PSL model. Well, yeah, with, like, like his, his licenses and stuff. Legends company that you know he like runs. Um, oh, I got notes on that. Hold yeah, that thought. We'll get there. Yeah, but, but, got, yeah, yeah, it's like it's like you know having training camp out in Oxnard, and then he would get him down to San Antonio as well. And like it's just this whole fucking traveling road show is like you know leaning into. But the But it's whole, amazing how like those like the luxury boxes, for instance, like he sold like 30 of them and that was like immediately like 18 million dollars in revenue because they were hemorrhaging cash and he had just he's like way over his skis on debt but he immediately that money goes straight to the team they don't share luxury box revenue with the league so he was really crafty about where he picked up money early on and then i guess you know winning solves everything so that's when it starts to turn into a circus um and and uh but one other piece of this that i think you guys will appreciate he also tried to get rid of the organization's policy that employees couldn't fraternize with the cheerleaders. This led to the uh, head of the cheerleading squad and uh, 18 of the cheerleaders uh, walking out, quitting. He quickly reinstated the, the policy and said it was a giant misunderstanding that he didn't, that he was not <laughs> we'll, trying we'll, to do yeah, that. We'll get there too. We'll get, there's stuff. more, there's more with the cheerleaders. There's more where that came from. But yeah, there's, there's all this, you know, kind of like, so Irvin's there and Irvin's like, the dude, right? The playmaker. The big 8-8. Eight, eight. Yeah, the big 8-8 the big eight, eight came from the U. I didn't realize Irvin was, like, married this whole time uh, to Sandy, his wife, and, like, everybody, <laughs> yeah. you know, loved her or whatever. But, like, there, you know, all these stories about, like, Irvin just being, like, you know, the quote is, like, nobody nobody has ever gotten more pussy than, than Michael Irvin was, like, some of the quotes in this book. And... There's like, you know, kind of leading up to this big, you know, like Irvin stabbing one of his teammates in, uh, at training camp one year, like over basically like, you know, it's kind of showing fissures in the, uh, the locker room and, you know, they're, they're kind of on the backside of some of the success and, you know, Switzer came in and there's no fucking discipline whatsoever. Whereas Jimmy was like, win at all costs, you know, I don't want you doing steroids or street drugs, not because I care about you because you're going to test positive. Whereas Switzer was just like, you know, kind of, Hey, do whatever you goes. Want, yeah. And then there's, there's all sorts of stress between Aikman and Switzer because Aikman feels like he has to be the bad cop and, you know, and Switzer's not, not doing anything as far as, you know, any discipline whatsoever. But there's this, you know, there's this story about, you know, kind of leading up, uh, you know, Irvin, it was like, he not once did he ever, heard a teammate there's all these stories about him vomiting while he's running routes after practice and working his ass off and just being this this absolute kind of force of nature within the team and there's this quote did he love sorting coke yes did he love lesbian sex shows yes did he love sleeping with two three four five women at a time in precisely choreographed orgies yes did he love strip <laughs> clubs and hookers and house calls from exotic dancers with names like Bambi and Cherry and Saucy. Yes, yes, yes. Was he loyal to his football team? Undeniably. He was the best teammate and even better role model to everybody else on the team. And that kind of 
you know, goes out the window a little bit when there's this kind of journeyman lineman that, uh, you know, comes in and he's not a rookie. Don't fucking treat me like a rookie. He's not going to wait for, for Irvin to get his haircut. He's going to get to the front of the line. And yeah, Irvin just ends up stabbing him in the throat with scissors. Irvin, yeah, Irvin comes in is like, get out of the chair. I'm getting a haircut. I don't give a fuck who you are. And some of the other guys were like, Nate, uh, excuse me, the, um, uh, the, the big guy who got the fumble stripped away from him in the Super Bowl. Leon Lett. Uh, Leon Lett is like, fuck that. Like, don't do that. Like, you're not a rookie. And Irvin's like, fuck you. Like, I do what you say. I run this team, basically. And they get up, like, in each other's faces. And Irving, like, just grabs a pair of scissors and, like, slashes him across the throat with the scissors. And everybody's like, holy shit. Like, this is bad. Is he going to die? Like, yeah. Yeah. And he's, like, bleeding, like, badly. You know, it almost nicked his, his uh, you know, main artery there. And Jerry Jones basically just kind of, like, quietly like makes it go away it doesn't come out for a long time uh because they paid the guy off and basically said like yo like this is this is bad things are totally out of control yeah. it was uh, everett mciver he was you okay. know who's like a six foot five lineman big dude and uh yeah there's a quote in in uh boys will be boys from kevin smith who was a cornerback at the time you can do a lot of things in life you can't stab a teammate with a pair of scissors and uh you know and you know but like this isn't like you know Irvin had plenty of legal trouble like he got sued in 1990 and 1995 he had a dispute in 93 with a convenience store clerk who wouldn't sell his little brother a bottle of wine um he pulled his pants down in front of Gene Upshaw and just berated him with like this string of you know expletives um Alfredo Roberts and the playmaker were caught in a hotel room with 10 grams of cocaine, a bunch of sex toys, a bunch of weed. Cops show up and he's like, hey, like first thing he says, you. hey, can I tell you who I am? And, uh, you know, it's just absolutely running shit in Dallas. And, um, you know, and then there's this there's this rift kind of along these same lines. There's this rift between Aikman and Jerry Jones where Jerry starts, you know, kind of calling Aikman a loser to others in the organization, it gets back to Aikman. Aikman is just crestfallen. Switz, and, Switzer does this. Or Switzer did. Aikman, yeah, right? yeah. 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 And it's, you know, it's kind of like, all right, this is kind of the beginning of the end. So Switzer came in. Let's see. Switzer comes in 90, what was that? 94? 94. 94. Yep. Yeah. 94, he comes in and then. They do okay that next year, but then they they win the Super Bowl the following year. They yes, make, make the playoffs. They're, they're a mess. Uh Emmett's holding out, so this they kind of recover from that, um, but they're they eventually end up, you know, winning the Super Bowl basically, like because they're just so fucking talented that nobody can sort of, yeah, you know, stop them. And there's so many like you know kind of seminal moments, like you know Leon Lett, you know, holding the ball <laughs> out in the in the here's one of the in the DC. I'm sorry to interrupt yeah. you. Switzer, this is why Aikman and Switzer was prone to saying erratic stuff in meetings that would uh, drive Aikman insane. He would give a speech to the team and he'd start talking about, you know, my daddy's black mistress. <laughs> and then he, <laughs> he drove real serious guys on the team who were under Jimmy just nuts. Um, like Switzer was basically just like a, all he wanted to do was just like drink and not really like coach. He just was like hanging out and carousing with the boys and, you know, n not a lot of like deep uh, diving on the, uh, on the actual, like he, he would let his coordinators kind of handle everything. Yeah. Uh, and, and, I, I like. I think to that point, there's this whole theme throughout Jerry Jones's tenure of him not let, like him hiring head coaches, 
and like not letting them hire their own staffs. So like he would already have an like an offensive coordinator hired and then would tell the coach, hey, you have to keep this guy. Like he did that two or three times, you know, or he's done that two or three times during his tenure. So that was a big thing with Switzer's thing. It was like he had to keep the staff that was already in place, you know, that that uh, you know, Jimmy had had already assembled and everything. Um, but yeah, 96, it kind of, you know, everything kind of falls apart, but there's all these seminal moments throughout where like, you know, in the, in the bills, in one of the bills, super bowls where, you know, Leon let holds the, the ball over the, the goal line and it's a touchback and all that, or, cause I guess he was trying to do the, the Michael Irvin or Deion Sanders dance or, you know, the, the butt, fu- the, uh, the other fumble, um, where he touched the field goal. Yeah. And you know, there's just all these kind of, you know, very iconic moments in football history, um, there, but yeah, 96 is kind of when it really, really started to unravel. Irvin sits out the first five games. 96, Sorry. Right. Did they win the Super Bowl in 95 or 96? Uh, I believe 95. So, yeah. So 95. they won. He, he took over 94 and they win in 95. 95. Okay. I want to share one of my favorite, uh, Switzer anecdotes. So, not only like Switzer loves strip clubs and he actually like did a, on his radio show, he had like ads for men's first, first men's clubs, which was like a first that said in NFL coaching history where they, a current sitting NFL coach was having like strip show. But upon being, this is from boys will be boys upon his for being hired by the Cowboys. Many wondered how Switzer would coexist with Larry Lacewell, the team's director of college and pro scouting. Why? Because after the 1977 season, following two decades of friendship dating back to their youths in southern Arkansas, Lacewell learned that Switzer had been sleeping with his wife, Chris. <laughs> in a delicious bit of irony, Lacewell's best man at his wedding had been none other than Jimmy Johnson. Switzer paid Lacewell $25,000 to assure that word of the affair never reached the press. Oof. God. S- Switzer's great, too, because like he was he was like a wishbone guy at, yes. at Oklahoma. There's there's something in like I think it was the early '80s where Switzer Switzer got knocked for uh, insider trading as well. Like he was he was getting tips on stock trades and stuff like underneath the bleachers at you know his son's track meet. Like there's all it's just it's like the most outrageous. Like the guy's just totally out of control. There's you know there's all sorts of recruiting stuff at OU when he's there. The Boz was there when he's there. It's just like like you know, kind of the, truly the wild, wild West. Um, and he's just recruiting his ass off. And then he kind of realizes, Hey, I need to get the hell out of the college ranks. Cause I'm chasing all these kids around and, you know, go to the pros. And, um, which it's kind of surprising that there's not really like in Jerry, like when he, so, so, you know, hires Jimmy hires Switzer. And then after that, never really hires another college coach. It's always like very pro oriented. You know, you're like, you're an NFL guy. He's not going to, so like that always kind of surprised me. Like he doesn't hire say, um, you know, a Lincoln Riley or, you know, kind of the hot new thing coming up. It's always, no, it's like very disciplined hires. Um, so yeah. So did they lose in, let's see here, 90, 95, they lost to the Steelers. That was the Bill Cowher. Super Bowl. He lost to the Steelers. And then, yeah, 96, it starts to really drop off. So um, Irvin sits out five games. 
after pleading no contest. They they, they won that game. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I don't want to interrupt TC, but they beat the Steelers. Oh, sorry. Yeah, when, sorry. They beat the Steelers. Neil, yes. Neil O'Donnell throws two interceptions, uh, basically right to Larry Brown. Correct. Uh, <laughs> and and then they, um, they yeah, 96, it all kind of, you know, falls apart. They, um, uh, what's his name? Irvin sits out five games after pleading no contest to a felony cocaine possession charge. Uh, a bunch of injuries. They they go ten and six, but the Panthers beat them in the divisional round. It's only the Panthers' second year in the league. And then uh, ninety seven, Switzer brings a loaded gun to the airport at DFW. Oh, yeah, uh, they go six and ten. He's got his big falling out with Aikman, and you know gets fired. And then Chan Gailey gets hired in ninety eight. So uh, Chan Gailey was. Uh, Prior to that, he was the Steelers' offensive coordinator. Chan Gailey, actually, they made the playoffs both years. Uh, they went 10-6, and six and they went 8-8 eight and eight the following year. Chan Gailey gets fired. They lose in the wild card round both years. Uh, Chan Gailey gets fired, but he's actually the only, uh, like, he's he's he never missed the playoffs uh, in both of his years. He's the only coach to never miss the playoffs there. And then... Uh, Dave Campo in 2000 gets elevated from defensive coordinator to uh, head coach. Uh, they have all sorts of injuries. They go five and eleven. Uh, Aikman retires. They go five and eleven in 2001. They go five eleven in 2002. You know, 01. They didn't have any first round picks. They had sent two first rounders to Seattle for Joey Galloway. In this time frame, they had drafted Quincy Carter in the second round. That's right. And uh, he's named starter like in the middle of training camp. Like I think he's like only the second, like first or second quarterback in NFL history to uh, you know, be named starter his rookie year as a second round pick, not a first round pick. And he gets hurt a bunch. Ryan Leaf makes some starts for him. Uh again, wow. they finish five and eleven. That's right. Campo gets absolutely filleted on Thanksgiving against the Broncos for choosing to to kick an extra point when they were down down uh, to basically put them down nine instead of uh, you know making it a one possession game with the uh, with the you know like the analytics guys these days would have like he would have been probably assassinated on the spot by the the Bill Barnwells of the world. He was the only coach to, uh, like, so they lost to the Texans in the Texans' first game as an expansion franchise, which that had to really piss off uh, Jerry. 0-2, they're on hard knocks. And they brought in Roy Williams. They brought in uh, Antonio Bryant. Pac-Man? Sorry? Was, it, was Pac-Man on this season too? I think, no, I think Pac-Man was on the, the one a few because they were on a, a couple early. times, right? Yeah, that was the second time they were yeah. on. Yeah, yeah, I think Pac-Man was on when they were on in what like oh six or oh seven or oh eight. They end up just a, a massive shitstorm, five and eleven. He's the only coach to have left the team with a losing record. They'd brought in Chad Hutchinson, who signed an undrafted free agent contract uh for three years, five million guaranteed. He was a twenty-five-year-old rookie who had played baseball. He ends up they they basically end up sending him to the NFL Europe, the Rhine Fire, in uh, 2004. Carter gets into a big sideline confrontation with Jerry midseason. You know, Quincy just can't stay off the weed. Like, by all accounts, he's a great kid. Like, Jerry believes in him, but he just, like, can't stop smoking weed. And this kind of 
becomes the theme of his entire career. He goes and plays AFL. He plays, you know, Canada. He plays all these places. And um, and actually, Neil Quincy's son actually plays for Southwest DeKalb. Well, I was going to say, yeah. Quincy's the, the pride of Southwest DeKalb yeah. High School. Yeah. Um, I think the the big theme of all this era is just like Jerry Jones is making all the personnel decisions. You know, that that's what he wanted deep down was that he was, you know, frustrated that he was never seen as the architect of all those great cowboy teams. And so he wanted to basically be the guy who pulled the trigger on us. There's the fun anecdotes of like back when he, Jimmy Johnson was the coach. He apparently would tell Jimmy Johnson, like, all right, we're gonna have ESPN cameras in the draft room. And I want you to like look at me every time the camera is on to make it seem like we're talking about the pick right before the pick comes on. So like he got his wish. He was the guy pulling the trigger, he and his son. And this is the sort of long, steady, slow decline of the Cowboys based on Jerry being like, ah, Quincy Carter's our quarterback. I love it. Which they so then Parcells comes in in 2003 and Parcells is there was some good stuff from Brian Curtis's piece on kind of the career arc of Parcells where Parcells comes in he does this whole thing of like earning the star on the helmet which I think they still do like if you're a you know draft pick or or you know an off the street guy you got to earn the star on your helmet but Curtis said Parcells was 62 when he took the Dallas job he was freshly divorced the whole thing had the whiff of a midlife crisis. Parcells was dyeing his hair blonde. He was pulling his shorts up so high they covered his gut. Dallas sports writers didn't like him at all. They sensed correctly that Parcells had no reverence for the job that Landry built. When Michael Lewis visited Parcells for a Play Magazine profile, he noted that the personal items in Parcells' office consisted of a binder with football materials, a binder with a copy of his divorce settlement, and three elephant figures, which he regarded as lucky charms. It got yeah. easier than ever to quit. And it, it was almost like Parcells was kind of a caricature of himself. It, it you know, he's 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 widely regarded around the league as, as kind of being being this disciplinarian figure and and you know the whole uh you know just kind of a, a prickly, you know, coach GM figure. And he kind of brought brought his own players in. That's right. He, he said about Roy Williams, he's just a biscuit away from being a linebacker to uh Terry Glenn, who'd miraculously forgiven Parcells and come to Dallas in a trade. My little honey bunch got a little bursitis on her knee, he said. That's amazing that Parcells continued to refer to Terry Glenn as as she, <laughs> like even into the Dallas era. And Terry Glenn was fine with it. It just takes it. And and but but it's kind of one of those things where uh Curtis kind of argues that Parcells was the perfect guy to come in at that time and kind of clean things up a little bit. And the creative tension between Jones and Johnson was back. Jones kind of had a counterweight of sorts. And, um, you know, there's rumors that Jones only hired Parcells because he was trying to get the AT&T stadium deal done and get public funding for that. So he needed a little bit more credibility there. But Parcells, like, you know, they succeed, right? They, they make the playoffs at nine and seven. That was the botched hold game. From Romo. Yeah, from Romo. That was, that was Parcells last year but uh his first year so they go they go 10 and 6 his first year they lose in the wild card round couple rebuilding years 6 and 10 9 and 7 uh in 04 and 05 and then 9 and 7 they lose in the wild card round and yeah and you know Parcells had unearthed Romo he'd kind of turned the roster over the roster was like he had brought in Bledsoe the roster was kind of dog shit 
There's so many names of this era. Like I, I've yeah. forgotten totally that Drew Bledsoe played for the Cowboys. So you know, in in uh, here's the offense. The year they go ten and six and make the playoffs his first year. Like it's a pretty excellent coaching thing. It's Quincy Carter, running backs are Troy Hambrick and Richie Anderson. They've got Terry Glenn and Joey and Joey Galloway. Dan Campbell is the tight end. Flozell Adams is the left tackle. Larry Allen is the left guard. Matt Lear. Center, Andre Garode, the the right guard, and Ryan Young is the right tackle. A few years later, in Parcells' last season, it's Romo, Julius Jones, and Marion Barber. To uh, which Parcells never refers to To as like by his name or anything. He just calls him the player. You've got uh, Patrick Creighton and Miles Austin as well. You got Jason Witten, Mark Colombo. Like it's a much better, much more solid roster and everything like that. Uh, and Parcells said at one point, you can't call them losers anymore. And yeah, kind of turned turn the franchise around. And then similar to kind of how how things, you know, seemingly went after the Jimmy Johnson era, it just seems like it's this slow erosion of sorts of, hey, he put these great luminary players and you know hall of famers like jason witten in place and then and then jerry just kind of takes it back under his own control so he hires wade phillips and they just have like middling success right it's nine and seven eleven and five six and ten eight and eight three years in a row uh wade phillips gets fired in 2010 after a really shitty start um and then we get the clapper for clapper eight your boy plus years and uh that's amazing he was there. that's a such a long like stint of mediocrity that you just went through of like just eight like a lot of promise but always just ultimately bad fucking teams yeah so they go eight and eight the clappers first three years then they go 12 and four uh that was when they had like D- demarco murray they lost in the divisional playoffs at the packers then they kind of bottom out they go four and 12 and then they're 13 and three and i think that's you know, Dax, the offensive rookie of the year, get the clapper wins coach of the year. That's in 2016, nine and seven, 10 and six, eight and eight, six and 10, 12 and five. And then, and then the clapper gets fired after the, uh, that eight and eight season in 2019. So, hit me with some of the, the controversy stuff. Cause I want, I want Neil to make sure he gets to do his business thing. What, what was the deal with the the cheerleaders that you alluded to? Yeah, earlier? so 2015, there's all these voyeurism charges, and they kept this totally quiet. Again, just like you know, you referenced earlier of like making shit go away. Jerry's good at that. Yeah. So Don Van Nata was all over this. Uh, there's an iPhone video through a peephole. Rich Dalrymple, who's the since retired SVP of PR and comms, basically got caught doing this. There's also you know, allegedly he took upskirt videos of Jerry's daughter uh, during the, uh, who Charlotte, who is the EVP chief brand officer of the team um, during the draft one year, basically they paid, they paid these cheerleaders. They paid four or five of them, I think six or uh, $2.4 million. However, this dude, Rich, who's like Jerry's like personal, you know, PR person and basically body there for 20 some years. Yeah. Yeah. Like ends up staying on for six years after this until, you know, ESPN and Van Natta get wind of it and start asking questions. And then, you know, and then they kind of quietly, you know, usher him aside. But, uh, you know, the fact that, that this happened and, 
six years go by and nobody knows about it and this guy stays in his role is is freaking crazy and then we've got the we've got the the paternity fiasco the last few years of you know there's a uh, i think it was a southwest airlines employee who you know jerry had a kid with allegedly and you know he paid a bunch of money for her sweet 16 party and giving her money you know throughout and like Jerry's been happily or, you know, supposedly happily married for 50 plus years with his wife. And there's the, there's the, the pictures of him that came out 2014, a bunch of pictures came out with him with, uh, you know, I'm not sure if they're strippers or, or whomever, but, uh, he's fondling the one lady's breasts or, you know, putting, putting the lady's face down next to his crotch uh, and she pulled her he pants tried down so hard to keep those pictures suppressed. I remember it was like a huge fight that he was like, I feel like Deadspin published them at one point. And he was like freaking out about that. It was, there's so many stories in boys will be boys about Jerry just, you know, banging women on airplanes or like, he'll, you know, meet reporters and be like, come sit on my lap. You're too beautiful to be a reporter. Come be a Texas cheerleader. Like, you know, I bet you I'll, I'll take you to heaven in 30 seconds. If you let me like, Dude is just a hound uh, running around Dallas. And he's got, and, and so basically he said these pictures were misrepresented, uh, <laughs> which the pictures are pretty, you know, pretty cut and dry. I think these pictures were from, were from like late, late 2000s, 2010-ish, kept some, you know, keep some kind of under wraps and then they finally come out or whatever. But all that's to say he's just, uh, you know, it's just kind of the football it always feels secondary to his ego. Like he wants it to feel, you know, but also he's put a shitload of money into the team and Neil, that's where you can kind of take over from here. And, and, and I, I think one of my other indelible images of him is in 2020 when he's on his new yacht, the Eugenio or the Bravo Eugenia, where he's doing the draft from his yacht, like during COVID. And, uh, you know, he just wants to show off this fucking yacht, this $200 million yacht, you know? Well, it's like the, the you hear a lot of people get compliments of like, or, or the old saying, it, nobody cares. You, there's no telling how far you can go if nobody cares who gets the credit. Uh, Jerry Jones is the exact opposite. <laughs> like, I almost feel like he doesn't want to win another Super Bowl unless he's the GM. Yeah. Right? Like, he, it's like, no, it doesn't matter to me unless I'm like, I made the decisions, which is like very funny to me. Because it's just like he's getting in his own way. But I have a couple things. I want to talk about the stadium. But first, I think this kind of sums up how Jerry Jones has transformed the – why the Dallas Cowboys are worth an estimated $9 billion is because he was like out front on marketing. So I said earlier that Landry and Trom didn't want to do brand marketing deals. Jerry's like, no, we can keep the historic you know, star intact and we can do deals with Pepsi. So this is from the 1995 uh, New York Times article. Uh, Jones oust Coke from Texas Stadium in favor of Pepsi. Quote, at a news conference outside of Cowboys preseason training camp in Austin, Mr. Jones kicked up his heels and flashed a pair of white leather cowboy boots tattooed with Pepsi insignia, courtesy <laughs> of Pepsi, and, an and announced quite unapologetically that he would be, quote, drinking Pepsi, selling Pepsi, and promoting Pepsi, despite the league's agreement with Coke. At the time, Coke had a contract that gave him exclusive marketing and promotional rights to all NFL trademarks, logos, and team names. Uh, Coke agreed to pay an estimated $250 million for the five-year contract in 1993. 
Um, and it made it like one of the largest sports marketing deals in history. So Jerry finds this loophole where he's like, yeah, Coke's still the official soft drink of the Cowboys, but Pepsi has the exclusive pour rights and is the official uh, soft drink of Cowboys Stadium. Stadium. <laughs> and so, so he just sick. found all these ways to just undercut the league and, and do a deal for the stadium exclusively over 10 years. Uh, and this pissed off all the other owners because it was like, you know, against the kind of shared revenue agreements. I think the the guy that owned the the Vikings at the time was in charge of like that division of the the ownership. Ziggy, like the Ziggy Wolf, I think. Yeah. No, no, it was the guy before him. Okay, bro, um, okay. And he was just like this that is was, that was Red McCall, right? That's right. Yeah, right. yeah, he was like, this is like this is such a short sighted decision. But it kind of like I think it kind of uh, blazes a trail with other owners on how to like market the state the stadium becomes the money maker right so this is texas stadium he's making all these upgrades he's got pepsi just plastered tostitos all the pepsi co-branches plastered everywhere he's making digital tunnels with pepsi logos all this all this stuff's going on uh the best quote from this new york times article though is uh quote the, the nfl expressed its displeasure with the defection of texas stadium which as a stadium is not bound by the nfl agreement and as the teams are an official charge the deal um an official charge that the deal shows some will try anything to associate themselves with the NFL and Greg Alio a spokesman for the NFL commissioner Paul Tagliabue said quote the commissioner is in Tokyo having a coke and is an unavailable for comment <laughs> so i think he's ruffling the feathers but kind of pushing like okay it's all about like you can still kind of be America's team and, and America's team is for sale. I think is like the, just kind of he has, right. Truly American. Yeah. yeah. Right. And I think, you know, the Landry and, uh, God, I'm second guessing Schramm. Okay. Got it right. Uh, are <laughs> Landry and Schramm were all about like, you know, Shram. The, Shram. 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 All right. Runs with jam. Landry and Tom and Tex were, were like, you know, okay, all this marketing's beneath them. But Jerry, I think he was quoted as saying, Dallas isn't about history. It's about like knocking stuff down and what's the next big thing, you know, like the big thing in Big D. So then here comes uh, the Cowboys Stadium, originally called Cowboys Stadium, now AT&T Stadium. So I think, you know, whether you like it or not, Jerry probably did the public-private stadium partnership better than anybody else. So it's the largest stadium in the NFL. It hosts basically 80,000, but can be reconfigured up to 100,000, um, you know, in attendance. Obstructed, with obstructed views. Of course. Uh, you know, Jerry's world, as we call it. So he shops it around all of the, you know, he wanted to put it in Dallas, but the, the mayor was like, no, we're not going to finance this. So the city of Arlington comes in. And uh, basically, they promised $325 million. And, and uh, so it's one of 21 pro football teams to play in a stadium funded using public dollars in the form of tax-free municipal bonds. And the funding it was supposed to cost $650 million. It ended up being $1.15 billion. Jones had to cover, I think, most of the uh, overage. Um, the city of Arlington covered three uh, 325 million via increases in the city sales tax by 0.5%. The hotel occupancy tax went up by 2%, and the car rental tax went up by 5%. Uh, and then the NFL provided a $150 million loan uh, also to help it to help it get off the ground. Um, it was it was uh, um, like resisted by a few anti-subsidy organizations, uh, including um, 
what was the name of it? Uh, a group called Jerry's World and the No Jones Tax Coalition. Uh, they definitely, definitely failed. Um, and I think, you know, I, I was reading up, there was an article on a, a website I found that was pretty good called um, propmodo.com, which was talking about how it's been a, like, it, compared to other stadiums that have been publicly funded, this one has been a success. Um, so since opening, hotel revenue is up 72%, sales tax revenue is up nearly 40%. City officials expected to fully pay off the debt of the stadium 13 years early, but decided to refinance the deal to fund the new Globe Life Field, the home of the Texas Rangers, which is right next door. Um, thanks to the destination the Cowboys helped create, Arlington has 17 million visitors a year. Uh, and then uh, this is another quote. This has exceeded our expectations, Arlington Mayor Jeff Williams said of the stadium. We were thinking we would have 25 events per year. So when you're thinking 25 and you get 300, um, whoa, it's a wow. Right now, AT&T Stadium is a real catalyst for us becoming the destination between Orlando and Vegas. That's our goal. And I think that's a pretty telling quote, especially with what you're seeing Mark Cuban do, uh, selling a majority stake in the Mavericks to the Adelson family, who's you know obviously biggest Vegas casino money, and trying Adelson to bring... What? Adelson's, sorry. They're the Adelson's. Adelson's, Adelson's. Yeah. Adelson's. Listen, it, it wouldn't be a trap draw without me mispronouncing stuff. The Adelson family and trying to bring gambling and a massive casino to uh, to Texas and, and Big D. But I think uh, the fact that Jerry's able to use this, you know, Jerry's world for not just football, but he's got 300 events going there a year, feels like it's a, a massive win. The other thing he does with the stadium is he builds all these other businesses off the side of it. So TC, you referenced this earlier. In 2008, Jerry and George Steinbrenner announced a joint venture to run concessions at Cowboys Stadium and the new Yankee Stadium called Legends Hospitality. They which, tapped former Pizza Hut CEO Michael Rawlings to run it, and it was Jerry, funded by... Jerry and George Steinbrenner. Like, like can you say, imagine a, a conversation between the two of those human beings? So <laughs> it, yeah. they, they get the CEO of Pizza Hut to run it. It's based out of Newark, New Jersey. It's funded by Goldman Sachs and a, a few private equity shops. Uh, Legends has since branched out to multiple venues across the world, such as One World Observatory and a 15-year, $875 million contract, Levi's Stadium, Indianapolis Motor Speedway, uh, Bank of California Stadium. They did the naming rights, and they do the concessions at SoFi Stadium, Notre Dame, Allegiant Stadium, University of Southern California, Prudential Center, on and on and on. So this company kind of took off, I think, basically saying, like, we're going to be the leader in stadium concessions. Uh, and it sold, it actually sold in uh, November, just like last month, um, to ASM Global, which I'm guessing is some big private equity shop. And it was rumored to be worth about $750 million. Um, so I'm guessing, like, it just kind of evidence of, like, you can hate on Jerry all you want, but he does seem to have a vision for how to, like one, sell something and two, like just straight up make money. Um, and I would give him credit for doing a deal, like doing a stadium deal, getting public funding and making it a win-win for everybody. Um, and he's also uh, doing this with the practice facility. So the stadium is, you know, AT&T Stadium. Uh, let me back up a sec. So 2009 stadium opens. It doesn't get naming rights from AT&T until 2013. And I think that Jerry really held out and was like, he had a price and it, I think it's $18 million a year is what AT&T pays for that. Um, for the naming rights. I'm not sure how long that contract lasts, but it seems like he was cool. Just waiting. He wasn't rushing for a, a naming rights sponsor. Um, and then the star is the practice facility in Frisco. And that was also subsidized with public funds 
And it actually seems to have an even better impact, economic impact on the surrounding area because the stadium surrounded by parking lots, you know, basically it's designed, all these stadiums are designed to just hoover up all the money basically for the team, like concessions, everything's going to run through them. Um, parking, you know, like tailgate stuff, you're going to buy that far from the stadium. But it seems like these practice facilities, and it sounds like a lot of other teams are doing this. He built the practice facility in Frisco, and that's created all this mixed-use development around the practice facility. So you get the shopping and the bars and the restaurants because – an Omni you know, hotel there. Yeah, you know, and, and it seems like that's been a, a really successful, like, second public-private partnership that, that Jerry's pulled off in the uh, Metroplex. Yeah. Neil, on, on the ASM front, they were – it's like all these kind of like joint ventures between so oh, it's AEG, so complicated Ogden like they were like a massive um you know kind of like Australian stadium management company and then Anschutz like like Philip Anschutz who's you know big you know staple center and all that stuff like you know AEG uh he he had this and then SMG was the spectator management group. So it's basically, it's not a private equity company. It's like the, it's now like the world's largest like stadium management okay. company. So it's, so it's like probably the best, you know, it's like he kind of identified a need and then built this business around it and then spun it off to like the most logical purchaser possible. It's almost like he reverse like, engineered the deal. You know, I wouldn't, you know, Jerry Jones, like class and, and, you know, grace aren't the first things that come to mind with him but one thing he does well is like he's not scared of debt which like i'm terrified of debt so when i see a guy like this that's like down to like mortgage the future with for his vision it's like you know like that takes some balls and then uh one thing he did really well i think with at&t is like he built the biggest baddest arena that he could even like comprehend like the screens and everything remember like the first game the punter hit the the jumbotron that's it one of my favorites wasn't high enough the nfl had to create a rule that basically said and still into rule today if you if a punter hits the big screen it's so it hangs down so whatever low than any other thing it's just a dead ball and they replay the down like imagine having such an ego that be like oh we're gonna have the biggest you know screen ever and the nfl is gonna have to change the rule for me it's just like, so amazing to me that the like you know one of the most expensive stadiums that they've that's ever been built they forgot to look at how the sun is oriented and so it plays like one side of the field plays directly into the setting sun like a large portion of the football season because there's those big windows there and it's like man like that seems like a detail that probably should have been looked at as well like there's always these 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 funny little wrinkles in there too and then well i think apparently yeah. he he and his wife and his daughter they quote traveled the world to find inspiration for uh for cowboy stadium so they got a bunch of inspiration from the paris airport and the surrealism there so like you see like the uh where the players walk in through the tunnel they have like the crazy digital screens and then he got the inspiration for the big jumbotrons, like the largest, like high def TVs in the world, by going to a, a Celine Dion concert in Las Vegas. He said, quoted as saying, like, I didn't see Celine once because I couldn't take my eyes off those big screens they had. And so he was like, <laughs> you know, dead set on putting these massive screens like directly over the field. So I still haven't been to ATT. I need to, I, I feel either. like I need to go. It's, uh, it, I kind of feel like, I, I need to do that as some trap draw research. Those field boxes they've got are like totally 
revolutionary as well. Like nobody yes. has done that, you know? So I, you know, he's, it's like, he sees, he's really good at identifying like, cool luxury boxes is like, that's money specifically for me and my team. We're going to go ham on luxury boxes on the field up, you know, kind of top level. So he is very savvy from a business standpoint. Um, but it's almost like, yeah, the ego gets in the way of like, God, he had so much, you know, success early. Um, and that he's just almost ridden that into, uh, like a lot of mediocrity, but it doesn't even matter at this point. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that he basically taught all the other owners in the NFL, how to like localize your market and keep your money. And obviously the NFL shares a lot of revenue, but he basically was like, look, if you want to like keep your, like it's advantageous to him because Dallas is such a huge market for this kind of thing. But you know, the parking, the, you know, the way that the franchises around the stadiums, like, you know, the, the individual, like, oh yeah, we're going to be the official, you know, software drink of the the stadium. That's Jerry Jones basically finding like all kinds of different revenue that didn't exist before Jerry Jones came around. And he very much, you know, whether or not he is the commissioner or not, like he very much pulls, a, you, it's very hard to get anything done in the NFL without Jerry's blessing. And there's a sort of a famous anecdote of he was the one person when Goodell's contract came up recently who voted against it and he was really pissed off at Kraft because Kraft was sort of driving you know Goodell to get this extension and that some of the like the financial things in the contract were very vague and Jerry felt was angry because he was like I want him to be very specific he has to prove that he earns this money because I'm sick and tired of just of him getting money when essentially Jerry's the guy pushing behind the 17th game Jerry's the guy who pushed very hard to move the Chargers to San Diego and get everybody's paid in the relocation fee stuff. So I think Jerry kind of felt like I'm the one doing the fucking job. And so when Kraft pushed hard for it, uh, Jerry was in a meeting and Seth Wickersham reported this said, do not fuck with me. Like, <laughs> and Kraft was like, excuse me. And yeah. he was like, do not fuck with me. Like as reported was, on the original yeah. owner's pod when we did Kraft. That's right. Right. That's but I right. think, and I think Arthur Blank, our episode on him is it's similar. It's, it all seems to stem now from the stadium. Can you, mm -hmm. can, how can you finance this stadium with as, you know, economically as possible, even if you have to rip off your own city? And then from that, everything else kind of like filters off, like the naming rights. And then like maybe you start a soccer team or you develop like craft in what they've done in the development around uh, Gillette. Like it's just, uh, I, I agree with you that it seems like Jerry kind of created that whole blueprint. Mm -hmm. Well, fascinating stuff, guys. Well, I think, I too, think we there's, there's, probably there's a few things, too, of, like, some of that behind-the-scenes stuff of, like, with other owners. Like, he's the one that kind of brokered peace between, you know, all the guys that wanted to move to L.A., like Al Davis and the Spanos family and Cronky, and then, you know, gets, you know, kind of brokers peace between cronky and spanos and get sofi stadium going and then obviously you know gets a fat deal for legends you know like kind of inserts himself into it and then supports al davis in moving to or uh mark davis in moving to las vegas you know of kind of hey here's here's your peace offering he's at the center of that deal you know he's he's just this this kind of behind the scenes operator of sorts and uh, yeah TC and I were saying before we recorded, it's like, man, he, I, I don't want to like the guy, but he is effective. You know, it's like he, the more I dig in and the more I'm like, damn, I didn't, you know, 
I, I, I guess, Jerry, I'm sorry. I wasn't familiar with your game. You know, it's like some of the, uh, like that he's just been really effective and he's, he's I would say overall from a fine, from a business standpoint, he's been a good owner from a football standpoint, TBD, but that could all change like this season. It seems like they're, the, the boys are trending. They're fraudulent. Uh, you know so? what? I, I, I think the, the thing that I most respect about him is there, there's always entertainment, right? There's always some sort of controversy or some sort of, narrative around the team like we could probably do an entirely you know secondary episode of with Sturm or Brian Curtis or you know anybody who's in that Dallas market of you know hey here's all of the the you know backstory here what you know whether it's Nate Newton getting popped even after be, like 200 pounds of yeah pot, like yeah. 200 pounds of pot in a fucking U-Haul you know traveling across interstate lines it's like there's always, you know, even if it's not when they're with the Cowboys, there's always kind of this Cowboys association there of, you know, I mean, there's all these stories of, you know, guys not even flying or riding with the team. Like they would ride in the limo to the stadium and, you know, with a bunch of hookers and blow in it. And like, it's just, it's like this larger than life. And it, I don't think there's a, a franchise that fits the city quite as well as the Cowboys fit Dallas to a T in all of professional sports in America. And I think in large part, that's thanks to Jerry Jones and how he's, you know, managed to like craft both the good and the bad. It's almost like the bad stuff is, is part of his master strokes too. He's like, Hey, you know what? Like we need to be controversial. We need to be, you know, like crazy, crazy urban legends. Who knows if this stuff is true. That's part of the magic of this, right? Yeah, it's true. I just love, I mean, we'll see it again this year, I think, but they always manage to lose in some total like dipshit way in the playoffs. Like remember, you know, last year or whatever, when they had Zeke like taking the snap, uh, whatever, and just getting absolutely <laughs> oh plowed over. Oh my God, over. that was awesome. <laughs> or when De the Dez Bryant had the, you know, when the, it was almost like the original, was yeah. that a catch or was that not a catch? Yes. Did he make a football move against the or Packers? When, when Tony Romo fumbled the snap yeah. on the field goal. Like there's, they always have some kind of weird shit happen to them in the playoffs, especially when they're good. It's and sick. I just, it's, it's very much going to happen again all over, especially with the Mike McCarthy coach team. Like, it's oh, just, I know I'm, I'm itching for it. Mark it down, right. Come back to this point in the trap draw when you when that happens because it's it's going to happen it seems it's like destiny. too there's there's this this sense of like now they're competent at least and that yeah. th i think that actually makes it better where like, like like jerry won the 2014 executive of the year award did he really and like that's got to be his crowning achievement in life i'm like yeah. you know what i can do it but i feel like the fact that they're competent and they can't get over the hump is is so much better than them being completely incompetent i mean and i have to think though after 20 30 years now of being the you know air quotes gm like he has to have learned something you know like he's he's clearly not an idiot so it's like you'd think he would get better at it just yeah. by like reps of like drafts and you know building a roster and all that stuff it's 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 very fun to make fun of him for like trying to play gm but like at some point like don't you become a gm from just like so many <laughs> chances at it you think so, but like in that Venata story, which I would encourage everyone to read, like he's he's talking like randomly to you know Venata overhears him being like, I think I might trade for Adrian Peterson. Yeah. Like it's which just is shocking that Adrian Peterson like wasn't the apple of his eye coming out of Oklahoma. Uh, totally, like, totally. You know? 
I, I, that Vanetta story is great. It just, you know, Vanetta basically like hung out with Jerry Jones for a week and like they just drank like Johnny Walker Blue Label, which, as anyone <laughs> knows, is like $250 a bottle. There's all these great stories in there about their, you know, Jerry's just at a club and like the club says it's going to shut down. And he's like, well, I just, I bought the club. So we're staying open for another, you know, three hours. Like he just, he's a man of appetites who chases them to wherever they lead. It's like, it's, it's amazing when you go to the Cowboys website, even of like, when you go to, you know, team and then there's roster depth chart coaches, executives, it just says front office and it's Jerry Jones, owner, president, general manager. And then he's got his three kids as executives right underneath him of, and like, he's not even underneath, like there's no, there's no, like, he's just his own section. And then it's executives, <laughs> Steven Jones, who's the COO. Uh, EVP, Director of Player Personnel, Charlotte Jones, EVP, Chief Brand Officer, Jerry Jones Jr., EVP, Chief Sales and Marketing Officer, and then there's football operations after that. And it's just, you know, he's like this force of nature that, hey, I am the Cowboys. Yep. Fabulous. Well, do they have a uh, last question? Do they have a succession plan? I was, was just wondering that. I don't know, to be honest. That'd be a great thing. I think we might have to do a little bit of update on our next owner's pod as we do a little I bit. I feel like we're going to get a lot of feedback. Please send it in. Uh, we'll have we'll have a mea culpa segment for, for Gerald, uh at the uh, at the top of the next owner's pod, and we can yeah. maybe dig into some stuff we missed. Yeah, we're like just yeah. scratching the surface with him. I mean, I realized like we could do a whole three-part series on Boys Will Be Boys. We could do it. Like, there's sure. just so many so many stories out there so this is this is a primer for the uninitiated to jerry jones if you're a dallas resident and you've been dealing with him for 30 years like don't don't call us get don't it. yeah okay. preemptive like, apology yeah. preemptive yeah. mea culpa yeah tc you didn't even talk about parcells's uh surprise plays uh, <laughs> yeah. that was that was that era of, uh, the jet jet plays <laughs> surprise thing. no offense to anyone yeah. all right no offense to anyone god uh, what um I like when did Jerry start getting plastic surgery too? Cause I feel like yeah, his appearance as well too. is just kind of like he, he always wears those aviators and yeah. he's, he just always looks absolutely outrageous. Yeah. That face is pulled tight, man. Yeah. There was definitely one t like year when he showed up for training camp where people were like, Oh my God, like it had been a dramatic plastic surgery uh, <laughs> change. So I have to look that up. I think that was in the mid 2000s. Cause I, I feel like I was in yeah. high school when that happened. He was like, Oh geez, man, somebody's like having a crisis. Yeah. And then his son, Steven just looks like, he kind of looks like animatronic. He looks like one of those like mega church <laughs> preachers a little bit, <laughs> you know, but it's just so funny. Like when they show them in the box during the games and stuff too, it's yeah. just always the two of them hanging out sitting there, you know, just kind of living and dying on every, every snap. But I just, like, yeah. it just blows me away that he gave the clapper eight and a half years of like, that's wild. So like he, like he kind of went from making these overly rash decisions and you know, cycling through coaches every every two yeah. or three years to like, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna spite everybody, and I'm gonna be patient. And Jason Garrett's gonna be my coach for almost a decade. Yeah, it's insane. That's tough. So, all right, good stuff, right. fellas. See you next time.
drop this and zip lock that. Right on my waistline is why I kept that strap. I remember nights. I didn't remember nights. I damn near went crazy. I had to get it right. Now I'm your favorite rapper's favorite rapper. Hey, now I'm your favorite trapper's favorite trapper. The absolute truth. Yeah, no joke. Who me? I'm